Welcome to St. Martin the Fields and welcome to Great Sacred Music and a special welcome to those joining us online. We're going to talk about heaven today and you'd think that's the kind of thing the church talks about all the time and you'd be partly right but actually the discourse on heaven within Christian theology in particular within popular Christian theology is, is pretty patchy. It tends to be uh, captivated by two obsessions. The first is the harrowing anxiety about who gets into heaven and who gets sent downstairs uh, and the determination to do whatever it takes to make sure you're going upstairs rather than downstairs. That's one understandable obsession and the other obsession which has perhaps become the more contemporary obsession is of offering words of comfort uh, to the bereaved. The problem about this second obsession is the tendency to avoid hard theological and philosophical questions in the mistaken notion that the church's principal job is to offer comfort, however superficial and cliched that comfort might turn out uh, to be. The, the, the key moment in the story of hell, if one could use a phrase like that, comes in uh, round about 1850. In 1851, just along the road from us here, about a mile down the road at King's College London, F.D. Morris lost his professorship uh, for refusing to say he believed in the doctrine of eternal hell. And that was largely for moral reasons. He couldn't come to terms with the notion of a, of a loving God who could, I mean, it's fine to send someone to hell for 100 billion years or so. We're all fine with that, I'm sure. But, um, but eternity is a lot, lot longer than 100 billion years. And he couldn't come to terms with that. And he lost his job. But nobody loses their job for that kind of thing these days. And so you could say that from the middle of the 19th century, the church started to stop believing in the notion of eternal hell. Uh, and that changes gradually the whole notion of what you think church is, because church isn't so much about making sure you go upstairs rather than downstairs where you die, and is more about what I, the expression I would use is living God's future now. In other words, modeling today the life that we will live with one another and with God and the new creation uh, eternally. So we're going to reflect on those themes as we hear the different pieces the voices have up their sleeve for us uh, today. And we're going to start, as we always do, at Great Sacred Music by singing a hymn together that you can find on the inside of your sheets. Now, uh, John Mason Neal was a great translator of hymns, particularly from Latin. This is a 7th century Latin hymn originally, John Mason Neal. Uh, named after the 17th century hymn writer John Mason. Um, you may know the hymn, How Can I Sing uh, Thy Majesty? That was written by John Mason. And John Mason Neal, a couple of hundred years later, was a Victorian Anglo-Catholic, translated a lot of Latin hymns, and he originally set this to plain song, which is quite a good fit for a Latin hymn. He saw it as a Lord's, that's to say, early morning hymn for monastic offices. Um, but then, uh, once this, his, his hymn became paired with Henry Purcell's uh, tune, Westminster Abbey, it became an absolute staple for the dedication of a church. And if you think about the second half of the 19th century, an awful lot of churches were built because they came up with the brilliant idea that the reason why not everybody went to church was what? because there weren't enough churches for them to go to, obviously. So they, the Victorians built huge numbers of churches to make sure that no one could give the excuse saying, I can't get into the church, so that's why I don't go. So 
in the second half of the 19th century, this hymn became the standard hymn. You couldn't open a church without singing this hymn to the tune Westminster Abbey, which is what we're just about to do. Uh, so we remain seated, voices stand and lead us as we sing Christ is made the sure foundation. You'll be familiar with a couple of the quotations that I'm going to share uh, with you now. And I share them because it's perhaps best to begin a theological understanding of heaven with what heaven is not. Heaven is not the continuation of a person's eternal soul in traditional Christian theology. Humans are one in life, body and soul, and one in death, body and soul. So if you've heard the famous words, death is nothing at all, I have only slipped away into the next room, Life is the same as it ever was. There is absolutely unbroken continuity. 
then you've heard words that have really got nothing to do with conventional Christian theology because that, those words are a denial of the fact of death uh, and a placing of hope in the continuation which the facts in front of you obviously contradict because the person is in fact dead. Christian theology places its hope not in our continuity but, the fact, but in the fact that our death hasn't finished God's purposes for us. Uh, neither is heaven our reabsorption into the infinite. You'll probably know the words, I am a thousand winds that blow, I am the diamond glints on snow, I am the sun on ripened grain, I am the gentle autumn rain. Now I'm going to be a little bit outspoken here, so please forgive me, but I would say those words come out of a worldview that stop caring whether a belief is true so long as it's comforting. Um, what's wrong with those two quotations? They make no reference to the scriptural notion of heaven, they have no place for God, and they specifically have no relationship to anything brought about by Jesus. So they're fine, but they've got nothing to do with Christian theology. What would be a better statement of a Christian theological position? Well, we're going to hear, possibly, musically, the definitive statement of a Christian theological position about heaven uh, as set by Edgar Bainton from the first four verses of Revelation uh, chapter 21. Edgar Bainton spent, uh, he, he lived the same sort of year span as, as many of what you might call the great tradition of Edwardian uh, and early mid-century uh, British composers, but his life had a very different shape. He grew up on Tyneside uh, as a Geordie, spending most of his life in Newcastle, he was a prisoner of war in World War I. And then in a move that none of the other composers of his era took, he moved to Sydney, Australia, to be the director of the New South Wales State Con Conservatorium. Quite a radical move at that time in the 20th century. What does this picture offer us as a different picture of heaven? It's a, it's a, it's a vision of worship, it's a corporate vision, it's a worship of friendship and eating together. This is a much more dynamic, theologically Christian vision of what heaven entails. Let's enjoy it together. It doesn't get much better than this.
Well, that text comes from the book of Revelation, which is a bit of a standout book in the New Testament, the final book of the New Testament, written 60 miles southwest of Turkey on the island of Patmos, uh, around about 95 AD, the scholars estimate, and it's written in a genre known as apocalyptic, and the simplest way to describe apocalyptic uh, today is it's a bit like a cartoon. Everything is very much exaggerated. You see Spitting Image, if you remember Spitting Image, it's actually on the West End, quick plug, right as I speak. Uh, you don't expect the Spitting Image to be an exact description of politics today. It's an ad exaggerated description to make an effect, and that's how apocalyptic works. And what we're seeing in, in round about 95 AD is a transition uh, in the early church from a time when the, 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 the early Christians were uh, an alternative subversive movement to where they started to become an actual threat and then they started to experience persecution. So the obvious question is if God is in control of history, if Christ has risen from the dead, why is it not happening? Why is the kingdom of God not come? Why are we being persecuted and having such an awful time? And the book of Revelation more or less is written as an answer to that question with the answer being because there are still darker forces in the world and in a sense, the more good raises its head, the more the opposition to good uh, becomes visible, but it will all turn out right in the end. So the book of Revelation has got, in cartoon fashion, lots of beasts, uh, lots of symbolic versions of the transcendent world, and an obsession with numbers, especially the numbers 4, 7, and 12. And it's a very dualistic book. There's a lot about good and evil, light and dark, truth and falsehood, God and Satan. All, all of it saying we're near the end of history, it's pretty awful now, but it's going to be absolutely fantastic. So we're going to hear two pieces now. One uh, is a setting of a text by George Herbert, the 17th century poet, who used to attend this church in its previous building, uh, because this building was built in 1726 and he was living at the beginning of the uh, 17th century, but he, did, he wasn't a, a congregation member at St. Martin the Fields in his youth. And Samuel Barber, who I'm sure you'll have come across, born in Pennsylvania in 1910, probably the most enduring fame of any 20th century uh, U.S. composer. Uh, he's, this is a very much a heavenly picture offered by George Herbert and set by Samuel Barber. And then we've got a, a kind of contemporary version of what Edgar Bainton was doing. Eleanor Daly, uh, born in Ontario, like myself, uh, has lived most of her life in Toronto. What she's doing is taking the tradition of the Requiem and bringing it very much into the 21st century. This is an a cappella Requiem. It's got a mix of Latin and Russian texts. It's got scriptural texts, and it's got some more contemporary popular piety. So it's interesting to compare her setting of Revelation 21 with the Bainton uh, setting we've just heard, two pieces describing heaven to us now.
Well, it's time for us to sing again, and we're going to sing Jerusalem the Golden. You can again find it on the inside of your sheets, and there again is our friend John Mason Neal translating another medieval Latin text, in this case a 3,000-line satirical poem by Bernard of Cluny. You'll be pleased we're not going to sing the whole thing. Um, it's called De Contemptu Mundi, translated on contempt for the world. Very interesting transition here. 95 AD, the enemies were all outside the church. Uh, they were persecuting the church. The church was threatened with extinction. By the time we get to the 12th century, nobody's threatening the church with extinction. It's absolutely the establishment. All the enemies are inside the church. And most of Bernard of Cluny's uh, poem is chastising priests, nuns, bishops, monks, and Rome itself, scourging them for their many shortcomings. And of course, you can imagine that 300 years later in the Reformation, the Protestants grabbed hold of this text and said, look, Rome has been corrupt all the way through, even at its height in the 12th century. Even Bernard of Cluny was saying so. Um, so what this poem is about in its entirety is the transitory character of all material pleasures and the permanence of spiritual joys uh, containing vivid pictures of heaven and hell. And this is a magnificent picture of heaven that we get in the hymn, Jerusalem the Golden. And if you're familiar with this hymn, you will be familiar with the tune Ewing. But in fact, Samuel Sebastian Wesley, uh, who famously composed Lead Me Lord, uh, wrote the tune Aurelia for this hymn. And those of you who are hymn anoraks will know that Aurelia became associated with the church's one foundation, a very different kind of hymn. Uh, and instead, this, is, this uh, hymn has become associated with the tune Ewing, which was written by a Scottish 19th century soldier who named the tune after himself. He was called Alexander Ewing, and the tune is Ewing. You couldn't really imagine singing this hymn today to any tune other than Ewing, but that's not the tune that was written for it. Nonetheless, it is a truly magnificent portrayal of a theological Christian understanding of heaven, and it can only be sung with full gusto which I invite you to do now as you remain seated and the voices stand and lead us to sing Jerusalem the Golden.
Well, we've come to the end of Great Sacred Music for this week. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. If you have, there are all sorts of ways of making a donation to keep this great tradition going. You'll see a QR code on the back of your sheets, uh, those of you in the building, and there's also a cash collection, and there are ways to text and to swipe a card as you depart. If you'd like to sample our Choral Classics program, our sister program, Sunday afternoons at 3.15. The theme on Sunday will be My Spirit Sang All Day. And then next Thursday, at this time, a great sacred music will be marking the 400th anniversary of the death of the composer William Byrd. So that should be a real treat. We're going to finish with a much more gut-level uh, understanding of heaven. This comes from the African-American spiritual tradition. We've looked at heaven in the first century. We've looked at heaven in the Victorian area. We've looked at heaven in the 12th century. Here is heaven from the point of view of an incarcerated slave uh, in the American South before the Civil War. This is set by Moses Hogan, who died an untimely death 20 years ago at the age of 45 from a brain tumor, but was at the time considered the world's greatest arranger of spiritual music. Even dying at 45, he left behind 88 vocal arrangements, and he was also an accomplished painter. This is a cry from the gut, a cry from the heart, uh, in a sense the heart of the uh, Christian portrayal of heaven, that it delivers us from the slavery and the prison of this life into the untold joy of everlasting life. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>